Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh. I'm joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? I'm great, David. I feel like Ted Cruz the night before I'm going on vacation. <laughs> or the I'm night before he's going on vacation. vacation. Yeah, not coming yes, back from yes. vacation. I feel like Ted Cruz is like, as he's packing his bag and getting ready to go to Cancun. Well, he didn't need to pack a bag, Frank. He was only going for 24 hours, despite the huge... <laughs> anyway, enough about Ted. But we've talked more about Ted Cruz than, than we want to. Um, Ted, Frank, you, you recently passed a test of some kind, and we usually think that professors give tests and not take tests, but you recently took a test, and in some ways that's connected to our subject of our, our, our discussion today. Do you want to tell people about the test you, you passed? It was not your vision test, you passed that, or your hearing test, it was a different kind of test. What kind of test did you pass? Or, or a COVID test. Or, uh, yes, exactly, I, yes. There's all kinds of testing going on. I passed my life in the UK test, David, a week ago, last Monday, in fact, uh, and I know you've passed it because you you're ahead of me on this yes you've already become a naturalized uk citizen but i am in the process of doing that and um well i have strong views on that which i probably won't share on the podcast or at least until the uh the process is is completed so i'll i'll <laughs> Most of those to myself, I suspect, because I'm still in limbo. But yes, a week ago, I passed the Life in the UK test, which is a test that everyone applying to become a UK citizen has to pass. There are 24 questions on that test, and you go to a testing center, and I can talk about that experience if you like. Uh, you go to a testing center, you take this test uh, on a computer, you have 24 questions, you have to answer three quarters of them correctly which means you can get six wrong, but no more. And um, uh, you take this test online. You have 45 minutes to do it. It does not take 45 minutes. Um, I think I, think I, I took, I took four. Yeah, I took four minutes, and then I took another three or four minutes to check all my answers. And, yeah, I was out of there in seven or eight minutes. Um, it's You don't, uh, David, You this is something you and I discussed offline. You don't find out how you did. You just find out whether you passed or failed, which is very frustrating to competitive academics. So I don't know whether <laughs> I, how I did uh, exactly, but I passed the test. You get it. I got an, e you found out right away. I got an email. Mm. I was told as I was left in, leaving the testing center that I would get an email in the next hour telling me whether I passed. I got it within minutes. And so I was able to uh, log on my phone, log in on my phone while I was walking home and find out that I passed. It costs 50 pounds to take. So you do want to pass it on the first go if you can. It's a very weird test. And we might talk about aspects of the UK test by comparison with the US test. Mm. Prompted by this experience, we decided to talk about the naturalization, the history of naturalization, but especially naturalization tests in the United States, because as listeners, many listeners will know, this is a sort of, it's a prominent thing in pop culture, certainly in movies and television, mm. uh, immigrants are always studying to take this test. So you and I had a look at the current 128 version question, 128 question version of the test. That's the newest version of it approved by the outgoing Trump administration. And uh, we wanted to talk about the kind of history of naturalization tests in the United States and what's on the test. And we might actually reflect on our experiences in the UK. How did you find the UK test? Um, so my, I took, uh, you have to take it not only for citizenship, but for permanent residency, or at least yeah, that's right. we did when, um, so we took it a uh, couple of years ago and, um, my family members studied intensely for it and I didn't really study for it. And I was worried that I had made a terrible mistake by not studying for it. Uh, but I think one of the questions I got was the date of Christmas. Uh, so um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting test. It's a, it's a similar test to the United States, the American test, uh, both in terms of its sort of big philosophy and, but, uh, and sort of when it came about. Uh, but it's also a fairly different test. We can talk about that at the end of the 
Yeah, because there's a lot of there are a lot of cultural questions like when is Christmas yeah. and so um, on, um, which, which you don't get on the U.S. Tab. Um, so let's talk just briefly about the history of naturalization before we get to the test itself, because I think those two things are hard to sort of separate. Um, and I think when we talk about naturalization, it's important to to say that naturalization and immigration are related phenomena, but they're not the same thing, um, and that naturalization is also not the same as, as suffrage, even though that's also related. Um, so, so I guess naturalization, the history of naturalization in the United States might begin with the Naturalization Act of 1790. Uh, Frank, if you wanted to become a citizen in 1790, what did you have to do? Well, it was relatively simple, provided you were a free white male. If you were a free white male of good moral character resident in the country for two years, you basically could become a citizen. So it was basic. It was uh, the requirements are pretty straightforward. And um, with those crucial qualifications mm. in terms of race and, and um, gender and, of course, legal status, and so you had to be of, of, of good standing and a good moral character. And, and that was that. You had to prove you'd been in the country for two years. The country, of course, was still new in 1790. And the under the new constitution, and it only the new constitution had only been in force for a few months at that point. But it's an interesting, it is interesting that one of the first things that Congress under the new government did was adopt an actualization act and recognize that there was a population of the United States. Um, an immigrant population or a migrant population um, that had a different legal status from those of from that of citizens, but also distinguishing that population from, of course, mm. the very large non-white, non-free population of the country. So on one hand, this is for its time quite a progressive measure, but of course there are in, there is uh, there are inscribed within it quite uh, regressive aspects, notably the restrictions in terms of 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 race and gender. But it's pretty straightforward. And then what we see during the 1790s, and we've talked about this in other episodes, we don't have mm. to belabor this really. During the 1790s, there's a kind of, um, the politics of the, of the United States become quite polarized and there are resonances today, in fact, of that, uh, particularly around the issues surrounding the French Revolution. So foreigners become associated, or European foreigners, I should say, become associated with, um, us, with radicalism and the danger of radicalism from abroad. And so notoriously in the, in the uh, Naturalization Act, of 1798, there's a there's one in 1795 too, but we don't have to worry about that. Um, in 1798, extends the period of residence from two years to to 18, 14 years rather, in 1798. So what you see is the length of time that an immigrant has to wait before he, and I'm using gendered language deliberately, before he can become a full can become a citizen and vote in the United States is extended to 14 years. So that extension is quite substantial mm. um, and and represents an effort. It's, it's, on one hand, it's an anti-immigrant piece of legislation, and it's a partisan piece of legislation. It's intended to prevent uh, immigrants from voting for the Democratic Republicans, who were the opposition to the Federalists. But on the other, there's still a recognition there that immigration is a thing and immigrants should become citizens. There's no desire, and there was, there was no ability of the government in the 1790s to remove immigrants from the country anyway. Uh, but they're, what they're trying to do is extend the period of time they have to wait um, rather than trying to expel them or prevent them from coming into the country at all. So it is slightly different from some later yeah. legislation we see. What happens in, take us through the 19th century quickly, David. I mean, I, well, so, you know, the interesting thing about that the 14 years is they go from two years to five years to 14 years, yep. and then they go back to five years not that long afterwards in the early part of the 19th century. And it remains five years basically for the rest of American history with some slight tweaks. But that's sort of the, the window of, of residency needed. Uh, for, for 
basically all of the 19th century, they're, they're building on this model from the Naturalization Act. And one of the intriguing things about it is that the Constitution says that Congress has the power to, to create uniform uh, naturalization laws. But most of the implementation of the, the processing of new citizens is not done by the federal government, but, but done by state and local courts. The Naturalization Act gives the sort of the, the power to sort of make people citizens to any common law court, which means that that you know the the process of of doing this is going to be somewhat different depending on what judge you end up in. Uh, and so there, there's a, a a very local element to this. Um, there's a couple of milestones in the 19th century. Uh, in 1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the one that ends the Mexican War, gives citizenship to all the people who are living in uh, the land acquired from Mexico. Uh, so there's a huge sort of grant of citizenship there. Uh, in uh, 1870, um, there's a modification to the Naturalization Act uh, where it had said uh, any free white people in 1870, uh, it says it includes people of African descent. And this is in part because the 14th Amendment had given uh, citizenship to, to people born in the United States, but there were some uh, formerly enslaved people who were not born in the United States who are emancipated with the 13th Amendment, but don't qualify for the, the 14th Amendment citizenship. Uh, and so in 1870, they modified naturalization to make uh, citizenship open for people of African descent, but it's still closed to people of Asian descent. Um, and the real big shift, though, is is in 1906 when you start to have real uh, federal oversight uh, with the creation of the Bureau of Immigration and Naturalization. Uh, and that's really when I think you start to see sort of the, something like the modern system developing with the federal government taking the lead about how not being organized. Yeah, I mean, thanks, David. That's a really good summary. One thing I should have mentioned, the kind of antecedent to the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, mm. is, of course, the Louisiana Purchase, because one of the things that does detain Congress and, and preoccupies Jefferson briefly in the aftermath of the acquisition of the Louisiana Territory is what to do with the people who actually resided in that territory. And they have a challenge there because there is a um, there are people who were 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 formerly French and Spanish subjects um, who were basically Creole settlers, if you will, in that territory. And there's a willingness on the part of the United States to extend citizenship, U.S. citizenship to those people, not unlike what happened after the Mexican War. But then, of course, there's also an enslaved population in Louisiana territory, and there's a very, very large indigenous population in Louisiana. And so there's a there's a brief debate, or it's a kind of debate within the larger debate about the acquisition of Louisiana about citizenship mm. that touches on some of these themes that will emerge, will be developed, uh, or will develop, I should say, over the course of the 19th century along the lines you've talked about. And there's, it's very closely tied up with, it intersects with race, of course, and citizenship mm. and rights and so on. And you've, you've very ably summed that up. But we see a lot of that prefigured in 1803-4 with the acquisition of Louisiana, interestingly. Going forward, essentially, to the creation of the Bureau of Immigration and Naturalization in, in 1906, I always think that's really interesting because on one hand, it seems restrictionist and we see we see immigration restriction evolving um, between 1906 and the 1920s where you get much more restrictive laws. And prior to that, there's been extensive restriction, as you've, you've already alluded to, David, where, particularly with regard to immigrants from Asia in the United States. Um, and so it's not a great time for immigrants in the United States. Yet there's this surge of immigrants between 1890 and 1920, especially from Eastern and Southern Europe. 
and the creation of the Bureau in 1906 is a kind of a response to that and can be seen, well, I'd be interested mm-hmm. to hear your, view, your views on this. I see it as, can be seen as the kind of governmental reforms we see during the progressive era. There's an effort to kind of standardize the process, how you deal with this, because previously, Immigrants would go and they would be examined before a court and have to testify to their attachment to the principles of the United States Constitution. And there was a huge amount of subjectivity involved in this. These are the same courts that are enforcing Jim Crow laws, for example, in parts of the country and using similar tests to prevent people from, uh, particularly African-Americans, from voting. So unsurprisingly, those courts are not necessarily going to be very friendly Mm -hmm. to immigrants, especially from Southern and Eastern Europe. And so the creation of this bureau in 1906 and the attempt to standardize things does seem to me to be of a piece with the sentiments of progressive reformers, part of which are motivated by, it seems to me, are motivated by um, a desire to gather information, but also to standardize things, make them more efficient. And so do you agree with that? I I would. I think there's some some other levels or layers I'd like to add to that. I mean, one is is Teddy Roosevelt uh, in in sort of pushing for for the creation of this this bureau uh, was concerned about corruption, which is one of the sort of central themes of of, of the progressive era, you know, there's concern that the judges are, are applying radically different standards, not only because they're interpreting the law differently, but also because, you know, they're getting kickbacks and various other kinds of, of, of kinds of local corruption that was taking place throughout the, the Gilded Age. Um, you know, this is an era, as you point out, in which the, the, the demographics of immigration is changing pretty significantly. Um, this is the point in which they really start to push uh, English as as being one of the the sort of unofficial requirements of naturalization. Um, it's also shortly thereafter that the the Bureau of Immigration and Naturalization starts to to create educational programs uh, help people become citizens. The same era in which that kind of progressive era a desire to create uniformity uh, both on educational and cultural lines. So you find things like citizenship classes being offered by the and they have a textbook they published in 18. It's not clear how many people are going to these classes. It doesn't still attended, uh, but there's a process of making immigration and naturalization a much more formal process. Um, and, and it is it's very intriguing that it is happening at the same time that disenfranchisement of African-Americans is taking place in the South, that segregation is becoming um, regimentized throughout throughout the South and, and, and with things like literacy tests. Um, and, and, and the literacy tests are often very similar to the kinds of grilling uh, that, that you know, citizenship uh, examinations were, were done. I think those two things are interesting parallels. And the claims made in both of them are about, well, if we want someone to be able to, you know, the, the rationale, the justification for these sort of racist policies where we want someone to be educated in the, the requirements of citizenship before they, they cast about. Um, right. I mean, it's, it's of, a party, of a part, I suppose, with the emergence of civics and civics education, which oh, emerges yeah. in the early 20th century in the U.S. and is part of the, the, the kind of impetus behind that is about making sure, or at least the, the stated intention is to make sure that this immigrant population understands the kind of fundamentals of American civic life so that they can participate and be productive citizens. And I, it seems to me that the test is, is of a piece with that. Um, I think that that's definitely right. Um, and the other thing you, you start to find, I think, during this early, uh, during the early part of the 20th century is... Um, 
a special pathway, and you find this after the First World War, a special pathway uh, for naturalization for veterans, for people who fight in the U.S. Army to attain citizenship through a, a expedite uh, route through military. So you find throughout the tour, you find attractive to military service because of citizenship. And obviously to that, going back in Civil War, we're an African, but that sort of citizenship becomes prominent. So David, what's the history of the test itself? Because during the 19th century, of course, people had to answer questions before a judge. Mm. And we don't know the questions weren't standardized. And there are some notorious ones that if you do research on this topic, you come up with like, how tall is the Bunker Hill Monument as if anybody needs to know that? Uh, how many stars are on a quarter? Well, it turns out there are different versions of the, the quarter. quarter. Yeah. So the, the, these, these, are, these are kind of weird questions, the, the ones that have come down. And then we get more standardization after 19th Although interesting and interestingly to me, or interesting to me, I should say, apologies, is that is that the test in the U.S. is still oral, and that now it's more standardized. But you still kind of have to kind of speak before mm. an official. Whereas in the U.K., it's a well, it's not just a, it used to be a written test; it's now a computerized test. It's basically like doing something, um, you know, it's like it, it, it's like doing a quiz really on, the, on, the, on your phone really um and so it's completely standardized whereas the questions are now standardized in the u.s but the format by which they are asked yeah is uh it's an it's still an interview uh you know so, so i think it's one of the things in looking at this that surprised me is how recent the modern version of the test is right so there's this sort of informal system in which a, 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 a judge is asking you questions uh you know that is Emerges in the 19th century, continues for most of the 20th. Uh, it's not yep. really until the, the 1986 that we see a, a test in the way that sort of a standardized, relatively standardized test in the way that that uh, it's people think of it uh, today. And even then, there's there seems to be, especially in the the early 1990s, some huge discrepancies about how the test was administered in in different places. Um, you know, and we, there have been several sort of modern versions of this test. There's the version created in 1986, which I think is, is indicative of Reagan era hostility to immigration. But then it gets ramped up in 2008 when there's a sort of new version of the test with 100 questions. Uh, and then there's a sort of a version we've got today that that uh, the Trump administration put into effect just before they left office. Um but crucially, people don't have to answer 100 no. questions. The, the questions are selected from 100 or now 128. So they're, they're, they're supposed to discuss, what, 10? Uh, well, so under the, the 2008 version, there were 10, you were given 10 questions. You had to answer six correctly under the new, brand new one that the Trump administration put in place just before they left office. You were given 20 questions and you have to answer 12. Um, right. You know, these are, as... If you look at the questions, that there are um, both the 100 version, question version and the 120 question of the 2020 uh, version of the test. Um, you know, a lot of them are are very factual questions. There's a whole sort of category of who is your senator, who is the president of the United States, how many states are there, how long is the term of office. There's a whole set of questions that are historical questions. One of the questions uh, that that a student, an applicant, might get from test of. Um, the uh, a uh, potential citizen might get is, is who is the author of the Declaration of Independence. So so and TJ gets gets a nod on the test at least uh, a couple times. Um, and there's some other sort of uh, broad civics kinds of um, looking at at the most recent version of the test or or any version of the test. Frank, what 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 questions jumped out to you? Um, I thought 
I, I have to confess, David, when I looked at these, both the 100 question version and the more recent 128 question, it was much more reasonable than I thought it was going to be. Again, mm. based on sort of popular culture and the, 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 the views about how, how the test is structured and also frankly, having gone through the British one recently mm. and prepared for the British one, because the British one has much more uh, culture, much more in the way of cultural questions. And, and uh, you really spent, so I'm looking, I've got my uh, book to prepare for the UK test here before me. You know, there, uh, here's a sample question. Uh, what is Yorkshire pudding? There's no equivalent to that on the US test. The US test really is basically, it's to our way of thinking, but of course, we're historians, pretty Hmm. basic governmental questions relating to government and questions relating to the history of the United States. Now, when we went on this, when we were preparing before we started recording, you, you know, pointed out some of the problems and some of the questions on the U.S. test. And there are some interpretive issues. There are one or two factual errors that are quite significant. Um, But Hmm. they're all pretty bad. It struck me as pretty straightforward and not unreasonable. I guess where my concern arises on the U.S. test is in the, its mode of delivery. The fact that this is still done in the form of an interview gives means that it's, mm. it's still there's a degree of subjectivity there that could be worrying. On the other hand, we as people who deal with complex historical material on a daily basis and, and examine students about this on a, on a fairly regular basis hate standardized tests. You know, we prefer essay exams, right? Mm. So there's nothing wrong in principle with interviewing Until people. I think an them. interview, yeah, t- exactly. Um, you know, in my experience of the, of the, of the UK test, was okay, you get your result right away and it is standardized, which is good. Um, but, but there's no latitude at all and, and there's no... There's no complexity at all in, in the way the test is delivered. So I think the subject, I think, sorry, let me back up. I think the content of the U.S. test is basically okay. And I was surprised that I, I was less outraged than I expected to be. And I think that's a reflection of some of the frankly silly stuff that's on the U.K. test uh, by comparison. I think its mode of delivery has both promise because it does allow the uh, person taking the test, greater latitude to express themselves. But I also mm. think that's a potential problem. So that would be my response. What's your response? Uh, well, this, I mean, one of the things that they've done with multiple versions of the U.S. test is they're trying to make it less trivia-based. Um, right. But it still seems like it's mostly trivia. Or even if it's not trivia, it is um, material that you can be a good citizen of the United States without knowing. Uh, you don't need to know who the Speaker of the House is. And that's one of the questions, who the current Speaker of the House is. Yep. You don't need to know that to be a good, you know, and, and there's always these questions about, you know, you'll see news articles periodically about how many, you know, Americans could actually pass this, not native born Americans could pass this test. Um, in part because civics education is, has been on the decline in the United States in the past 20 years for, for a variety of reasons. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure how critical it is for for immigrants to 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 know these this particular set of materials. Why is because um, it doesn't seem to be a requirement for people who uh, you know. And the British test, as you point out, is is different in in the sense that they give you this or you have to buy this book um, that has all the information on the test and it does include these things about Yorkshire pudding and, and who the patron saint of Wales is. Each country yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and what their saint's day is, you know, and, and there's lots of more uh, what is either minutiae or cultural material, depending on how you want to read it. Um, and the pass rates for both of these tests tends to be fairly high, um, although it tends to be much, much higher for people who are 
from countries that are of, of similar linguistic and cultural backgrounds to either the United States or the UK. Uh, so, you know, the pass rate right now for the American test is 91%. So then one, one has to wonder if, if almost everyone who takes it passes it, what, what is the function uh, that it serves? And, and I'm, I'm not quite sure I know what the function it serves is. You know, thinking about what the barriers are to, to becoming a citizen of the United States, and there are a huge number of barriers to becoming a citizen, getting legal immigration status, extraordinarily hard right. Um, that's a major barrier. Um, paying for naturalization is extraordinarily expensive, both in the US and the UK. That is, for most people, the bigger hurdle. Um, and this test seems to be simply just another hurdle for people to, to a hoop for people to jump through, to mix metaphors. Um, that, that I'm not entirely sure what its place is. And it's also a, a political tool in, in small ways. I mean, people point out that, that some of the changes the Trump administration made from the uh, 2008 test uh, are, are little things like um, the 2008 test, the, the correct answer for who does a U.S. senator represent. The correct answer in the old test was all the people of the state. The correct answer now is the citizens. Now, that seems like a relatively minor difference, but in light of the Trump administration's desire to exclude immigrants from the census and their broader immigration, st their broader immigration stance, um, you know, there, there's, there's subtext to these things. One of the 128 questions is about the economic system of the United States, and the correct answer is free market capitalism, which is true. But why is that one of the 128 things you need to be able to regurgitate to pass this test? And I don't know whether that's more critical than Yorkshire pudding. Um, <laughs> I think there should be more dietary questions on the American test. There's no dietary. You don't. If there's a question about what food do you serve at Thanksgiving, you know, that would be a good question to ask. If you want someone to become an yeah, American. on the UK test, there's there on the UK test. There's a question about what people eat at Christmas. There's also a question where they ask you to identify um, foods from the different nations that constitute the yeah. the United Kingdom, and, and so. I mean, Scotland gets haggis, of course, but. And whiskey. We get, you know, there's all kinds of good stuff that, you know, you could include on a, a, an American version of the test uh, that, that, that test that there's, you know, if you're going to have a test uh, that assesses uh, different kinds of things. Um, and, you know, it, there are very few countries in the world that do this. Uh, it's the U.S., the U.K., Australia, Canada and the Netherlands seem to be the, the only ones I could find who, who have a test of this kind as part of their citizen. Now, other, other countries have different things. Sometimes they have classes to take of mechanisms, but uh, the, the particulars of, of a, a test as being one of the hoops. Relatively minority in the number of countries and countries that are, are obviously sort of linked together and important. Yeah, but there are also countries that all have substantial histories of immigration. So, so. Oh, to be sure. It's, you know, so, so. Um, I, I suspect I'm less skeptical about these tests. I'm skeptical about the content and the way they're conducted, but I don't see the test itself mm. as necessarily a problem. I mean, I, um, so, so my, my response to the life in the UK test, which I've seen called, um, Pretty Patel's patriotic pub quiz, because uh, it does have elements of, <laughs> of, of instituting, um, you know, there's definitely a, a quite overt patriotic and political subtext more overt on the UK life in the UK test I, I think than the the US test frankly I think more questions are of the nature that you were talking about with the citizenship of uh, sorry representing citizens as opposed to uh, residents mm. uh, there are more questions on the UK test like that 
than on the U.S. test. Uh, so I think the content of the test might be an issue. I don't have a problem, actually, with saying, okay, if you're intending to become a citizen of this country, these are the kind of basic fundamentals about the way the system works. You know, I, I, for example, there are numerous questions on the life in the U.K. test about the legal system and the legal systems mm. in the constituent nations of the U.K., um, and which court you go to for what things. And so that's in actually Wales. useful knowledge for Yeah, not just in Wales. <laughs> it's not just in Wales. It's also in Scotland. It's also, well, I know, yeah, and yeah. The, 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 it, it's, uh, that's useful stuff, frankly. I, I don't think it's outrageous to think, okay, a citizen, uh, somebody who wants to become a citizen should know a body of knowledge. It, it, it doesn't seem outrageous to me. Um, but given that, that, you know, the majority of people who have citizenship may not possess, you know, and if citizenship is about a bundle of, of rights that one acquires and, and obligation to the state that one undertakes, you know, for people who are born into citizenship, you know, they don't know how many people are on a jury in a certain kind of trial in Wales, or they don't know how many people are in the United States Senate, um, but they still get to exercise all of the powers of citizenship. Um, now, I mean, since you mentioned the essay exam, would you rather have an essay exam? I would much rather have been able to bludgeon the people I encountered at the test center last Wednesday with my words <laughs> than to have them treat me pretty shabbily, I would oh. say, to take this ridiculous trivia test. Um, so, yes, would I have loved to have been able to speak freely mm. in that environment? Absolutely. Oh. Uh, whether I wanted to write the exam or not is, is debatable. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 I don't have a problem with with tests of this nature, provided they're fair and mm. equitable. And look, there's always going to be the issue that people born in a country may not be able to pass the test. And this is this is a standard mm. trope. Again, having looked at the U.S. test, I suspect the majority of Americans could get 12 out of 20 of those questions correct uh, of U.S. born mm. American citizens. Uh, I don't actually think it's that hard a test. And the life in the U.K. test there's a hell of a lot of trivia there mm. and there's uh, stuff like, you know, and some of it's quite obvious. So, you know, you have to know Wimbledon's a tennis tournament. Now, whether you need to know that to be a citizen or whether you just know that from living in the UK, you wouldn't even have to live in the UK to know that. Mm. Um, I don't know. But, but uh, so it, it's more the content of the test that, that irritates me and the way they're delivered. But I don't think having a test in and of itself is an issue. As many listeners will know, my wife is, is, also going through this process because she's Swedish and um, they don't have a test like this in Sweden. On the other hand, I, despite being married to her for 30 plus years, cannot become Swedish mm. because we don't live in Sweden. Now I could pass a life in Sweden. I think I could pass the life in Sweden test if there were a multiple choice test, like the life in the UK test, mm. but it wouldn't qualify me for Swedish citizenship. I don't know how I feel. I mean, on one hand, I think, well, they can make their own rules. They make their own laws. That's absolutely fine. It, and basically their rule is you have to be married to a Swede or, or in a long-term relationship mm. with a Swede and living in the country rather than simply have this relationship outside of the country. Fair enough. Their country, their rules. Uh, but there's no test. I, I don't think a test is the worst thing in the world. I just don't, I don't, I don't, mm. I, I think provided I think it's, it's oh, implemented the, in an, equi in an in equitable world, fashion. You know, yeah, yeah. No. Okay. But, but I, in other words, I, it's not, it's not in and of itself a tool. Uh, it's not necessarily nefarious. Um, I, I worry that, that, you know, part of the, you know, because if you look at sort of the pass rates, both in the U S and the UK, uh, what's pass the UK rates pass for both rate? tests are very high. Oh, uh, I want to say it's 80 something percent. Um, 
and again, the UK has also had several sort of variations of their tests over time, but that there are fairly substantial disparities about who passes depending on uh, their country. Um, and I, I'm concerned, um, you know, whether this is by design or whether this is by sort of artifact or a consequence of the nature of the test, that, you know, the, the test is designed to discriminate against certain classes of immigrants. Um, and to make it very easy to pass for people like us who grow up in English speaking countries of, 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 you know, with, with certain cultural similarities and with have Christmas on the same, um, you know, people from middle Eastern countries seem to have very low pass rates of the UK death. Uh, right. But, but so hold on, David, you say design that way. So that is the intent. But that, that could be, well, the I don't know whether, the, I mean, I, I think that's I don't, a, the thing is, I don't know. I don't know whether it's the intent or whether it's the design, uh, but that seems to be the effect. You know, and I think the American test um, in its various incarnations was designed to in- make it more challenging for people from some parts of the world to, to, to become citizens. If it's a hoop that exists, it's a hoop that's a very easy hoop for some people to jump through and is somewhat more challenging for other people. Simply sure, based but that on- may not be intentional. Yeah, but that may not be intentional. So if you come from an Anglophone country mm. and you're taking a test in Britain on life in the UK and you're coming from a country that has close cultural links with the UK, you do come with, you know, it's an easy test mm. for us. I didn't have to study very hard for you. I studied a little bit and I kept passing the practice yeah. test and thought, oh, it's fine. I've got this. Uh, that I, that may not be intentional. Like that's just the way it is. I mean, I mean, it's, I will tell you. So my experience last week, you know, you, you go in and the people who work there are terrible. They treat you badly. <laughs> they treat you without respect. I have a lot mm. of grievances with the way they conduct the test because I felt it was incredibly disrespectful. Mm. And I can go into detail if you like, you know, so I think there's an issue there, but I went in there and yes, I had, all right. So I'm a, I'm a middle-class white male uh, and I'm I'm a citizen of the United States. I'm not worried about my citizenship really Mm. or anything like that. So, so, and I had, because of my profession and experience and all background, I had certain cultural capital going into that room and was coming into that test pretty confident that I would pass it. That was not true of everybody in that room with Mm. me. And I was acutely aware of that because we're all standing there holding our passports, which you need your ID to get in for the primary interrogation before you can Mm. take the test. And that was what I really objected to, the way that was conducted. And quite clearly, there were people in Mm. there in that room with me who were very nervous and agitated about this. And I felt great sympathy for Mm. them. Frankly, I think that the guy who was running that room should have been a little bit more sympathetic. Uh, But I don't know that that is by design or an accident of birth and culture yeah. in other words i don't uh, you, you, you know in other words i i don't so th- th- there were people and we weren't allowed to speak to each other although there was a little bit of nonverbal communication um i i don't, I don't know the way around that yeah. i mean unless you i mean your, your solution would be say have no test because of that and that's a legitimate position i don't think that i don't think it's outrageous to expect people becoming citizens of a country to have a basic knowledge of whatever is des- whatever is determined by, and this is where things get tricky, mm. by the government, if you will, to be the required basic knowledge. Because th- that knowledge in and of itself is not, I just don't think that's outrageous. Now on the UK test, you know, and again, because my wife is a non-native speaker of English, her requirements are different than our requirements were. Yeah. Now she gets out of the language requirement because she has a degree from a British university, but you have to have a degree from a British university, which of course is class-based, or you have to take a separate language exam. Now you and I were exempted from the language exam because of our country of origin. So there is a level of, uh, 
sorting going on because of language. There's no doubt about that, but yeah. I don't think the test in and of itself is the problem. Anyway. Well, it's, you know, thinking about your, your bad experience, and I, I'm sorry that you had a bad, as a British citizen talking to you, uh, a potential British citizen, I'm sorry you had a bad experience. Um, I should talk to my I wife. was within seconds of saying F you and walking out. Well, that's what I was. Uh, <laughs> one of the interesting things that's happened with British uh, immigration and naturalization is that they've actually, you know, they've outsourced most of the actual work to private companies. So both the testing yeah, uh, right. and uh, the people who take your fingerprints and do all that kind of background checks on you is actually not done by the home office anymore. It's done by done by private corporations who have contracted to do it, shaped in our, our experience. Uh, you know, whereas in the United States, it is still all done by the federal government. Although, you know, uh, thinking about people who have different experiences going to take the test, my mother's Canadian. And when she took the test in the United States, she took it in Texas. And she told me she got a, a radically different experience than everybody else in the room because she spoke English fluently as a Canadian. Um, you know, and so she was able to, to, to and, and she said she was treated very, very differently than everybody else there uh, as a consequence, um, which, which put me off slightly on sort of the nature of these tests, because, uh, you know, she said she talked to a judge for 30 seconds and then walked out. And so she wasn't getting, they were getting a different level of interrogation depending on, on, on simply the way that she presented herself, you know, walking into her country of work. Which is why the UK standardized test arguably is better. Although it's got other, it's mm. it's got other problem. The content of the test is a problem, but the fact it's twenty four yes. questions, you answer them, and that's that means the standardized nature of it arguably is 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 superior. You know, to avoid that very issue. Yeah, uh, it does require a lot of cramming for those people who ha who don't possess all that knowledge about who Henry VIII's wives were and all that kind of stuff already. Because uh, there is a there's literally a, a a book that one needs to not quite memorize, but uh, at least. Uh, and a not insignificant number, a not insignificant number of questions relate to Henry VIII and his wives. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, well, you know, uh, it, it is interesting about both both of these tests about what it is that they say is important, and there's obviously a huge amount of uh, political history here. You know, they're, they're, in terms of the kinds of history that is valued in in both of these tests, uh, it is overwhelmingly sort of the British test. It's, who various kings are, uh, or something about Winston Churchill. And the American test is very traditional. You know, half of it's sort of civics, and the other half of it is which dead white guy wrote this document. Um, uh, but David, there's also way too much Civil War crap on that test. There's too. not very much Civil War crap <laughs> at all. Well, so actually, one of the things that's changed over the years, thinking of the Civil War question, and it's, it's not on the most recent version on the test, but it was on uh, one of the previous version was a question about what the cause of the Civil War was. And there were two correct answers to that. You could say either slavery or you could say states' rights. And both of those would be marked as, um, which I think is an uh, uh, interesting read on that particular one. Uh, yeah, the, the current test does not say nearly enough about the Civil War. There's one question about name an important event of the Civil War. And they've got like a, a, a good you know, dozen things you can pick from all of which are in chronological order on the correct answer sheet, except for one, uh, they have Antietam in the wrong place for who knows what reason. I think probably because the Trump administration finished putting this together at the last minute before they were uh, packing up. But uh, 
Hard to say. Well, uh, people who are listening, much you can go and take the online versions of both of these tests. They are they are fun to take uh, if you've never taken them before, especially if the stakes are nothing, because um, they're not cheap tests to take in person. It's fifty pounds or something to take the UK test. It's fifty pounds for the UK test. That's why I didn't walk out. I'm cheap. <laughs> exactly. Well, and then you could you know take it again and again until you pass it. Take a lot of money out of you. Um, although that's cheap in comparison to actual cost of itself. Uh, very expensive, uh, but definitely go go and. Take, take, take some online tests, see, see whether you would pass uh, by either the US or the UK version. I'm tempted to take the Australian version, but I'm pretty sure I'd fail that. Right. Uh, time for last drops, Frank. What you got? I want to pay tribute to one of our uh, colleagues uh, in the historical field, which is uh, our colleague Ben Marsh at the University of Kent. Um, ben and his family will be known to many of you because they've become internet sensations during the lockdown. Uh, most recently, they had a write-up in yesterday's New York Times, which we can link to. Um, ben and his wife, Danielle, and their children, Alfie, Thomas, Ella, and Tess, are incredibly talented musicians. And they have sung a series of, they've recorded a series of parody songs during the lockdown. They began by singing uh, from Les Mis, something that really took off and got them on Good Morning America last spring. Um, they recently recorded a, a, a version of Hallelujah um, about, about the vac vaccines, you know, have the new jab that's absolutely beautiful. These people are incredibly talented. The, the, the lyrics are very, very funny, but their musical ability is great. And Ben is also a practicing historian. He's written a very <laughs> fine book on silk in the Atlantic world uh, during, um, from, from the 16th to the 19th centuries. Uh, ben and his family are lovely people. I've met them. Um, and well, he's, it's he's just wonderful that they have had. That's right. He taught at the University of Sterling and I, I got to meet them. I got to know them a little bit and I've known Ben for years. Uh, and, and they are very, very nice people. And the fact that they have taken off. So if you go to YouTube and search for the Marsh family, you can see any of these uh, songs they've recorded. They are well worth your time. And I'm just thrilled that nice people uh, are, are being recognized nice, for doing yes, something yes, wonderful. Yes. I will say they make me feel wholly inadequate when I think, what did I do during lockdown? I didn't learn to record music like this. So uh, Lockdown's um, yeah, not over, Frank. I think you can still demonstrate that's your true. other talents. <laughs> well, I passed works, the like UK test. UK test. test. Oh yeah, that's one thing. Yes, okay. And Ben didn't do so, that. Anyway, so that's good. Okay. No. So, so I want to pay tribute to the Marsh family singers um, who, are, who are absolutely fabulous and have done really great stuff during lockdown. Very, very witty and very, very talented. What about you? Uh, well, I want to uh, recommend two things. Uh, one is that in a little bit over a week, uh, we're having the annual meeting of SASA, uh, the Scottish Association for the Study of America. Uh, it's online this year, like every this year, and it's free. So you can register and, and attend that. That's on March 6th. Uh, but on the week prior to uh, the, the main conference, we're having a whole, uh, including a historical uh, walking actually, of Edinburgh and of London, uh, look African-Americans connection with both of those cities, a pub quiz workshop, uh, working on about publishing. So there's going to be all kinds of events in the week leading up to uh, March 6th. So I highly recommend all of it's uh, free for those people who are so interested. Uh, the other thing I want to recommend is you know, on uh, Netflix, it's a series called Amend, which is about the 14th Amendment. And the 14th doesn't get nearly uh, enough press. Uh, and so I want to sort of highly recommend this. It is uh, hosted by Will Smith, uh, the uh, actor and, and, and musician. Um, but it's got a whole cast of, of really sort of great historians who are uh, involved 
um, Eric Foner, David Blight, a number of others. Uh, but they've also got, he's got a all-star Hollywood cast of people who are uh, reenacting various uh, figures connected with the 14th Amendment uh, legacy. Uh, so I highly recommend uh, Amend. Recommend Amend. Yes. Uh, on, right. on, on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, it's good, really good stuff. Right. Until next week, Frank. Cheers. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.